Hello, and welcome back to The Journey, a self-care podcast going beyond skincare products. I am so excited to bring you this conversation today. And, you know, I'm excited about all the interviews that I've done on this podcast, but I'm particularly excited about this one with Michelle Wong because we just had such an amazing deep dive conversation about so much. Michelle Wong is a chemistry PhD and science educator. You may know her as Lab Muffin Beauty Science. She has been blogging for 10 years and she has a very popular YouTube channel and she really is a leading voice in the skincare science community. With myth-busting videos, anti-fear-mongering content, and healthy skepticism, plus a true and deep love of skincare products, Michelle is making chemistry concepts easy to understand in the skincare space. So in today's conversation, we talk about Michelle's journey to her chemistry PhD and why listening to her gut was so important and really following her passion. She did not have it all figured out right away, but following her gut, listening to that inner voice really guided her on the right path. We also talk about the origins of her blog and her YouTube channel. We also deep dive into who to trust online. This is a big question a lot of us have. Who should we be listening to in the skincare space? Who should be the best source of information for all of our skincare questions? What really makes somebody an expert in skincare? And we really dive deeply into that topic. And of course, we had to talk about sunscreen. I mean, Michelle is so well known for her sunscreen education, making those concepts really easy to understand. So I had to ask her, you know, how do we go forward from the sunscreen scandal of 2020? How do we move forward and make smart choices that we're comfortable with as consumers? We also talk about gender dynamics in the science world versus the skincare world. And we also talk about how the skincare community has changed in the last 10 years. I am so excited to share this conversation. So without further ado, let's get into this interview with Michelle Wong. So I am so excited to have Michelle Wong on the podcast. I have wanted to connect with you for a really long time. I'm like fangirling just a little bit inside. I'm like, I'm keeping it in, but I'm just so excited to connect with you. Uh, some of my listeners may know you as Lab Muffin on YouTube or from your blog. Michelle, welcome. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. Well, thank you for being here. Like I said, I'm I'm a huge fan. I love your channel. I love I just actually just watched your um, your video on the inky list succinic acid treatment this morning. And I was like, yes, yes, this is what <laughs> I've been saying. This is not like a new ingredient. So anyways, big fan, longtime viewer. So I like to start off every podcast interview with uh, a simple maybe question, which is what is self-care to you? I think self-care to me for me personally, I have a really bad habit of just working too much and not really prioritizing um, relaxing. I'm really bad at relaxing. Like even things like getting a massage or um, doing a face mask, that sort of thing is just really not, I just don't do them and I feel like I really should. So for me personally, self-care is the discipline to make myself take time out. Um, sometimes I don't have that discipline. A lot of the time I don't. So for me, a lot of it is um, booking in exercise classes that I cannot miss. And so I think, yeah, self-care for me at least is a lot of discipline to force myself to relax before I burn out. 
Yeah, I love that. I am kind of the same way. I have to like force it a little bit. Like it has to be like on the calendar. It has to be like time set aside. Like it's an, it can be an effort, but it's well worth it because, you know, you can't just keep going and going and going. Eventually you do have to stop, refuel, (laughs) and then get back on the road. So I, I love that, that you, you spoke to the fact that sometimes it's not easy, but it's necessary. So I'm curious, um, you know, you have a passion for science, you have a PhD in chemistry. I'm curious, kind of like going way back, like when did that, that kind of curiosity or or that, that passion spark for you when it came to science and chemistry and what ultimately, you know, led you to, to earn your PhD in chemistry? I think with this, there's so many little moments, I think that all contributed to it. So one of them was like a book that my mom bought on a whim, um, which was called Chemical Chaos. And it was just about like, it was like a, it was like part of that horrible science series, which is part of horrible histories, which is like this fun, um, it's full of cartoons and it's all about the history of like how different things came to be. And um, with the chemistry one, like they explain some of the science, but not all of it. And I remember thinking, what is joining atoms together? Mm. And so I just wanted to know that. And then I think later on, I read about like, how does Panadol know where to go in your body? Like how do painkillers know where the pain is in your body and fade that? And I was like, how? Yeah, that's a good question. How do they know where to go? And so there were all these little questions that I was like, I, I really want to know how this happens. And so that I think that's what led me down into chemistry because so much of how our world works is based around chemistry. And um, now I know the answers, which is nice. Um, But I think like, as you learn more, then more questions come up and you just sort of go down this deep dive. Um, I probably wouldn't recommend doing a PhD just because you want to know things. (laughs) I think that's an awful reason to choose a degree. That's a long way Um, around (laughs) answering some of those questions. You know, like, Yeah. And I think it's good to have like a career in mind, like a good idea of um, what your personality suits in terms of careers before you pick a degree. And I think it is kind of um, in Australia, the way it works is you have to choose your degree when you're 18. Um, Once you leave high school, like there's no general college degree or anything. And so I think a lot of people that I know, um, they pick like a degree that they don't realize is not good for them. So for example, my sister picked accounting, she hated it Mm. and getting out of it was like, there was this massive barrier. Um, I think in America, there's more of like a generalist system where you pick where you go a bit later on, but in Australia, it's like straight out of high school. Yeah. You can Um, go for like two years, just kind of getting the general kind of higher education, you don't have to commit right away and you could commit and not really have done the majority of your program until, you know, your, your third year in. So yeah, there is a little bit more flexibility and a lot of people change their minds. <laughs> a lot of people Yeah. Do. I think that's so much, that's, I think that's a better system really. I think they're trying to do that in Australia. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that's sort of what led me down. Um, Also, when I left high school um, in Australia, you do this like this bunch of tests and you get like one number that kind of determines your fate. (laughs) Um, It's sort of like SATs, I guess, but it's more specific. 
Um, so once you have that number, they let you go into whatever degree you want. Um, I was a massive nerd, so I was pretty much allowed to do any degree. And there's this whole thing where it's like, if you have a lot of points, you should use them. Like it's, it's the most stupid idea, but everyone's like, oh, you got this mark. Why aren't you doing one of the top subjects? Like the top ones are medicine, science, oh, sorry, medicine and law. So I picked law because I didn't really want to go into medicine at that point because I think I was really just like I was just a really immature teenager I was like everyone's doing medicine I'm not I'm gonna be different I'll do law (laughs) (laughs) it was so stupid again like it's just all these little tiny decisions that kind of lead you to where you end up Mm -hmm. um so I did combine science and law and then um I started working in a law firm um as a paralegal in my second year of my degree and I hated it I hated it so bad. Um, I was working for a tobacco company. I think this is really what was it. I was working for a tobacco company and every day I would be reading, we were defending the tobacco company. And it was one of those lawsuits where it was someone got cancer and they believed the tobacco company had been hiding the link between smoking and lung cancer. And so I was working for the tobacco company and it was just every day I would like cry on the train to work, which was 45 minutes, um, 45 minutes of crying, 45 minutes of crying back. Um, and then after I think like a week of that, I was like, maybe I should quit law. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's what, and then by that point I was like, so deep into science, I'll, I was like, let's see how this goes. Um, and then, yeah, I ended up seeing how it went all the way through a PhD. <laughs> you just see how this goes. Oh, hey, I did it. Yeah, I feel so, I'm I was very lucky though because in hindsight it could have gone very badly. Mm, like mm-hmm. the career prospects for chemistry PhDs in Australia is not great. Um so it could have gone much much worse and I would recommend people probably not take that route. <laughs> I think people should consider what the career prospects are before they pick a degree, before they decide to do a PhD. Um yeah, so I it's weird because I kind of feel like when I talk about how my career went, I feel like there's a lot of, I got really lucky, do not do what I did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I think throughout the theme of at least what I heard is that the gut instinct really, you know, kind of kicked in. You were sort of faced with Mm. making what feels like an impossible choice. And you're like, I'm too young. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. And a year from now, let alone five to 10 years, but kind of at every kind of key moment, your gut instinct kind of kicked in and was like, you know what, Mm. this probably isn't for me. So let me go over here or, Hey, this seems interesting enough. So I think that's always an important thing that we don't always like tap into our like intuition and our gut instinct. And sometimes we just have to kind of follow the passion or turn away from the things that make us cry Mm. for 45 minutes on our commute. (laughs) Yeah, I think, yeah, I really agree with that. Um, I think gut instincts, I know as a scientist, I'm meant to say, ignore your gut. Sometimes we do have to ignore our gut, but sometimes it's just, if it's something that's, I guess, um, consistent, like if you have a consistent gut feeling about something and it feels wrong every time you do it, if Mm -hmm. that's what you're committing to for the rest of your life, whether it's like a relationship or a job, then like, you're going to have that awful feeling the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So I'm curious where you started your blog around 2011. Where did Mm -hmm. you 
like when did the idea to combine like the the love of beauty and the love of chemistry and kind of combine both worlds into a blog like where did that idea spark from so when I was doing my PhD um, I obviously did not have much income so I would look up skincare products that I wanted to buy in so much detail um, and I think it came from there that was um, like I was seeing so many reviews where they would mention little things and again it was that whole like but why sort of yeah. um, instinct and so I started searching and I got really deep into peer-reviewed journal articles textbooks stuff like that and I was like other people must also be wondering about this um, and they don't have the resources to access these and they don't have maybe the education to read these either and understand it so I'm going to put it in a blog so other people don't have to go through all this time and effort digging. Um, so that was one of the reasons. The other thing was, um, as I was doing my PhD, I realized maybe I didn't want to be an academic mm -hmm. because academic lifestyle is not for everyone. It's very, very intense and the whole atmosphere is very competitive. Um, there's not that many jobs and there's a massive um, number of PhD students. So one of the parts I was thinking about was science communication because I love writing. I love that sort of creative side. And one of the things they tell you to do is start a blog. This was back in 2011 when blogs were really big. Yeah, um, Blogs yeah. are less big now. But yeah, they were like, start a blog and use that as your portfolio. And then when you apply for a science communication job, you have that. And yeah, so I was looking at that and I saw lots of really good blogs about really, I guess, intensely sciencey topics like medicine, vaccines, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Space, there's always space. <laughs> um, and I think one of the things is I saw it was really saturated and it sort of felt like it was preaching to the choir. Um, so I was like, why not try communicating to people who might not be that into science and then show the relevance of science in their lives as well. So yeah, it was like a combination of things and then yeah, started writing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you, you hit on a point that I wanted to talk about too, because yeah, 2011 was a, you know, it doesn't sound like a really long time ago. Maybe I'm it just is. showing my age, but it just, oh, me too. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was a very different time on the internet. And I really do consider your blog to be one of the last standing of like the golden era of like skincare blogging. Cause a lot of the blogs, that I was reading at the time, they're defunct. They're, they're done because mm. yeah, blogs aren't as, you know, popular of a form of communication anymore as they were, you know, 10 years ago. But I'm curious, you know, how have you seen the landscape change uh, from, you know, kind of the blogging community, skincare community, uh, you know, now moving into more social media platforms like um, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok now is the newest one. How have you kind of seen that community shift and change as we've shifted like communication styles, I guess? It has changed so much. So with blogs, I think there was like a high and like higher barrier to entry because to set up a blog, it's a lot more difficult. So a lot less yeah. people were doing it. Um, but back in 2011 as well, um, on the flip side, it was a lot harder to monetize a blog compared to now. Um so yeah, on the one hand, it was a lot easier to start blogging, but mm. it was much harder to like sustain any sort of income from it. But now um, I think it's also partly because I started in 2011. So I have like an established domain. 
So now um, there's a lot of networks and stuff. There's a lot of support if you want to monetize a, a blog. Um, so there are lots of um, ways of doing it, particularly through banner ads. Um, so that's one of the big differences. Um, the other big difference is it was a lot harder to interact with people through a blog. Like on a blog post, you'd get 20 comments. Half of them would be from other bloggers. Um, whereas now on social media, it's so easy to um, to go back and forth. Like you have comments, so many comments on Instagram, um, on YouTube, stuff like that. Um, and so many more people are blogging um, through Instagram, like microblogging and yeah. stuff like that, which I think is really great. The thing that's not so great is that it's hard to search for things. So if you just want like 50 reviews of um, a sunscreen, it's impossible to find on Instagram. But yeah. back in the day, you could Google like a popular sunscreen and like five bloggers would be talking about it. Yeah, I think that's kind of why I like YouTube, um, especially as like my main platforms, because you can find it like through Google, because mm. I don't know if you're like me. I'm also a person who asks why a lot or how. And I'll just ask Google <laughs> and mm. they'll be like, you know, like, what is the ingredients list of this sunscreen? And more often than not, the first thing that pops up is a video. And I'm like, mm. OK, great. And then they just like break it all down. That's the answer to my question. I am curious, where did the name Lab Muffin come from? I get asked this all the time and I don't have a great answer. Um, it was just my nickname back then was okay. like, was Muffin. And then um, I worked in a lab and really, and then I, mean, I was the like. simple explanation. It's, oh, it's, it's, so, it's such an awful name. Um, so I started it like it was just, it was just that thing where when I do something, I just need to start. Like I'm mm, so bad at starting mm -hmm. things. Once I start, it's fine. I'm just, I just need to kick, like I need a kick in the ass. Um, yeah, and here. I was like, if I don't, if I don't start a blog, if I just agonize over the name for like six months, I'm just never going to start. So I was just like, okay, I'll pick a name and then I can change it later. Um, and then I just never got around to changing it because I never thought of a better name. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's too late. But your gut instinct was right, though. It's like, just just go with the first, your first instinct. This is it. I know I got to get going on this. So just mm. push it out there into the world. It's okay if it's not. That's the one thing I tell myself a lot. I'm like, done is better than perfect. Mm. Yes, because, that's so important. You know, if you like obsess over the little details for perfection, you, it will never happen. It will never mm. happen. <laughs> that's so true. a hard lesson to learn. So- when did YouTube like kind of become part of your your brand and part of of your work? Because, you know, you started in YouTube 2017. So you had been mm -hmm. blogging for quite a while. And then, I mean, you're also blogging as well, but you kind of shifted over into the video format. Is, is, is a lot of that rooted back to kind of blogs starting to phase out a little bit as time went on? A little bit. Um in the sense that I found myself watching a lot of YouTube videos, mm -hmm. um, not, not necessarily on beauty, on like everything. And then I guess I, like once you start watching something a lot, then you start thinking of how you could do that with your own content um, as a content creator. One of yeah. the things as well was um, there was one concept that I was having a lot of trouble explaining through text. I was thinking about making animations to make it more obvious. It was actually what I did my first video on, um, which was why low pH is good for acids. And like, eventually I was like trying to make an animation and I was like, why don't I just make a video 
Um, it would be so much better with a video. And at the time I was also teaching. Um, and when you're teaching, you can move things around. And I was feeling kind of limited by text because I was doing so much talking. I was like, why not just start talking at a camera instead of at a classroom? Yeah. I think that's an interesting point too, because there are some, like I'll, when you go on Instagram, you say, uh, oh, I have the post and the video about this. Sometimes I'll watch the video, but then sometimes I'll miss stuff and then I'll, I'll go back and read the post or vice versa. And it, it really does kind of hit different parts of your brain and different parts of like your learning center. And so I think it's actually kind of brilliant to have both formats available, you know, when possible, but it, it does kind of open up certain concepts in different ways or like mm. deeper learning. Um, when, like you said, it's like some, I can't, I can't explain this in text, but like, if I could just explain it through words or even just by like body language, you know, that can tell so much. And it, I think that that really helps people understand, like you said earlier, you know, I, I think that a majority of your audience are people who are not chemistry PhDs or, or looking to attain that highest level of information, but they just kind of want to understand basic concepts about why their products do or maybe don't work for them. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's exactly it. Um, yeah, I think that is why I do so many um, different formats of the same content, even though I realize they compete with each other. And if someone watches the video, they're not going to read the blog post or whatever. Um, I think, yeah, my main motivating factor is trying to help people understand stuff. And yeah. the more ways I do that, the more reach I have, the more um, different forms I've made it in, the better a job I've done. Yeah, no, I think I think I don't think they compete against each other. I mean, like in views or whatever, maybe they do in the short term, but in the long term, I think that it just, mm. it reaches more people because everybody's got a different learning style. So yeah, mm. you might, you might reach somebody through a simple Google search with, you know, a blog post and maybe they didn't understand it completely, but maybe they click through to the video and then it makes sense or vice versa or whatever. So yeah, no, I, I think that it's a good thing and it, 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 enables you to, like I said, hit a greater audience because you're doing it in different ways. And I always say like your vibe attracts your tribe. And I think that that can be true too, even just with your content style, you know, and it will change per platform. So I think it's good. Speaking of your content, you know, you do a lot of myth busting, which I love. Um, particularly, I get those little like infographics on my Instagram feed. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting, uh, juicy. But you do a lot of your content, whether it's on the blog or Instagram or through your YouTube videos. A lot of it is focused around misinform you know busting misinformation mm -hmm. really and i um i definitely think there's a need for that uh today in our kind of current space um in the skincare community definitely i'm curious to hear kind of like your take on why you started to do that do you feel like all the information available available to consumers is actually kind of like starting to confuse us rather than inform us Definitely. Yeah. There is so much misinformation. And I think definitely before social media, there was a lot of misinformation, but I think it's just gone into hyperdrive yeah. with how easy it is to share and pass on information that you haven't vetted. And I think some social media platforms have started putting, um, like I think Twitter, if you try to retweet an article before you read it, they go, are you sure you don't want to read this first? <laughs> Which I think <laughs> is actually quite good. Um, but yeah, I think 
one of the reasons I went down the myth busting route is I, I think I did like one post on it and it just went viral. Um, and I think part of it is if you get your um, assumptions challenged, it kind of blows your mind mm. and it kind of leads you to this moment where your mind is really open and you want to know more. Um, and I think, I think humans just want to learn things. I think we're all very innately curious and I think it taps into that, which is really cool. Um, so that's partly why, partly it's also just because, um, I'm not a great photographer. So (laughs) having infographics and my infographics are so basic. There are so many people making amazing infographics out there. Mine are like literally just half like 30 seconds on PowerPoint. Um, but yeah, it actually reduced my workload a lot as well. Um, it's a lot easier for me to like type up a science post than it is to set up a beautiful, um, flat lay, which other people do amazingly. And I do not. Um, so I think it was like, yeah, playing to my strengths as well. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good a point too. And I don't think that it just hits like content creators. Although as a content creator myself, I'm like, yes, ease the workload, just do, mm-hmm. do what you can do <laughs> and play to your strengths. Definitely. But I think it is important for us. I think we were talking about before, you know, like done is better than perfect. And sometimes it's like, you just, you have that idea, you have that, that passion, you have that something that you want to share just get it out there. It's, it's, all, yeah. you know what I mean? There's always going to be an audience for it. If it's not perfect or done the way you had imagined it, it's okay. But you know, the most important thing is that message. And if you can get it out there, then that's a good thing. And yeah, don't stress about the details of it. Cause yeah, you, I, I know I, I personally can spend hours just trying to perfect a thumbnail and I'm like, why am I doing this? Oh, thumbnails are like the worst. This. I hate making thumbnails. I make all of yeah, mine and I'm too. just like, no, no. I'm like, everybody's yeah, got nicer awful. ones, but yeah, <laughs> this is done and it's it's got the title and it's got the products and we're good. <laughs> and you can change it at any time as That's well. True. <laughs> but I don't know. I feel like maybe we obsess about it because it is like the first impression that people get. Yeah. And YouTube tells us this all the time as well. Like they're like, to make a clickable thumbnail, you should use these colors. You should have this mm-hmm. many words. You should have your mouth open. You should show the whites of your eyes. Um. <laughs> you should have your mouth open. I haven't heard that one yet, but no, because I it's heard the that big, at a it's YouTube. The, it's the thing. big facial expression mm. trend that everybody's like, yeah. oh, wow, no way, <laughs> kind of like gets your grabs your attention. Yeah, but yeah, I. I do some of that, but I, I don't, I can't do a lot of it because I just feel so weird being like. Yeah, I feel so awkward doing it. Yeah. I think trends to aside, it's like that will go out of style soon enough and we'll be all on to, I don't know, doing something with our noses. I don't know. But <laughs> it, it is, kind of, yeah, it is kind of like a weird sort of trend type of thing. I was thinking, this is like totally off topic, but I was just thinking this like the other day I was like. You know, some people can get on YouTube, particularly, they can get so obsessed with like the aesthetics and like Mm. kind of the quality. And I I don't mean quality like in the con, like the meat of the content, but like the looks of everything, Mm. the backgrounds and the the camera quality and the lighting and the thumbnails and the graphics. And some of them have like animated titles and stuff. And it's like, you know, I think that it makes sense if you've been 
doing the YouTube game for a while to just mm. kind of always be trying to do better. But I always mm. wonder how much does that actually help? And I, I don't think yeah. it actually does, you know? Yeah. I think sometimes um, like if you are a content creator who makes aesthetic videos, yeah. I think that's fantastic. And like, if that's your style, but yeah, for me as someone who just wants to get information out there as effectively as possible, I think um it helps if it's not distracting. Like if, um, so if my lighting quality is trash and everyone's just distracted by me looking like a potato, then <laughs> in that case, it wouldn't be helping. But yeah, I think it just, for me, it needs to be at a quality that's acceptable. And then, yeah, if I make small tweaks to it, that's more important. When I look back at my first few videos, the quality is absolutely awful. Um, but I think it goes back to the thing you were saying, done is better than perfect. Yeah. And also once you've done one thing, you can improve it. If you just keep on trying to perfect the thing before you release it, then you don't have that extra um, feedback. It's sort of like, I guess it's sort of like trying to swim um, by reading about swimming. Yeah. And if you actually go and swim, you can learn how to make your swimming better so much more effectively than if you just agonize over your first swim. Yeah, it's almost like the muscle memory. Like you have to, you have to learn it in the doing, rather yes. than like in the the learning or the the up here kind of like analytical kind of side of it. Sometimes you just kind of have to feel it out as you go. Mm. And you know, I my first year of content, I'm like, I couldn't, I can't watch it because I'm just like, no, it's <laughs> terrible, and I sound strange, and I look weird, and I don't know how yeah. to light and whatever. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but those first that first year of videos, that first like 50 some videos got you to the next year where you got better, mm -hmm. and then got you to where True. you are now, where you grew. So it's almost like I, you, you can't. It, you can't divorce your journey from like where you like awkwardly started because that's what kind of mm. launched you to where you are now. And it's like as much as I, I hate and don't want to watch those videos, I'm like, but you know what? They, they serve their purpose. And I learned and look at how much better I am. So I think it's also like how you go back and look at it, too. It's like your mindset. But, yeah, you can't you can't start perfect <laughs> if only, but you can't. Um, I am curious. You know, I feel like one of the hottest topics in the skincare community right now is really like, this is just a huge topic in general, but like, who do you trust? Particularly as a viewer, you know, um, in the skincare space, it's like, should I only be watching dermatologists or should I be listening to an influencer who calls himself like a skincare enthusiast? Or should I only be look, like looking to the scientists for information? There's, there's, I think, a lot of discussion around that, particularly around the role of influencers who are technically, you know, non, I guess, professionals um, or, you know, not formally educated in this space who maybe do overstep the line sometimes and maybe they give out misinformation or they kind of interpret things in sort of a strange way, but kind of present it as facts. There's a lot of conversation about about that. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts about, you know, the role of truly any content creator really in this, I guess, in the skincare space, because that's our sort of shared corner of the Internet. And, you know, the future of responsible content making. That's a really, really interesting and messy topic. Um, it could be a I'm whole so different podcast. It it's so interesting. Oh, totally. Um, I think one of the things um, I think it's important to mention is that there is no such thing as 
one field where it's like skincare experts. Mm. Like there's no such thing as a holistic skincare expert. So if we look at the top types of people who tend to be raised as experts, um, dermatologists, dermatologists are experts in mostly skin disease. Um, a lot of their time is not spent on skincare. Um, most dermatologists I've talked to and asked, they have said um, they get very little training in skincare. One dermatologist actually told me she got more training in snake bite than in skincare <laughs> when she went through. Yeah. So um, some other dermatologists have gotten a lot more training in skincare. So I think, um, yeah, I think people kind of aren't really sure what dermatologists exactly do in their day to day. So um, I think dermatologists, they have so much training in skin. If they actually turned their mind to skincare, they could definitely become like the total. I think any, any like trained scientist, I guess, could probably do this. But um, yeah, so I think dermatologists, are, and they also come at it from a medical angle. So a lot of medicine is about um, a risk benefit analysis for the patient. So a lot of the time, they're not going to recommend a less effective treatment rather than something like Accutane. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, skincare, it's not regulated as drugs. There's a lot of issues with, like, whether things will actually work for, let's say, acne. So a lot of the time, dermatologists tend to recommend things that are very safe and very evidence-based. But that means then... You don't really get into the fun stuff, like the enjoyment, the self-care, yeah. that sort of aspect. On the other hand, people also raise up chemists and cosmetic chemists. And as a chemist myself, we are also not the skincare experts. Um, a lot of cosmetic chemists don't learn a lot about the in-depth science behind how the things work. A lot of it is there is so much to learn in cosmetic chemistry. Again, it's the thing where most of the time, if you're a cosmetic chemist, you are formulating products, you're learning about ingredients from the ingredient suppliers. The ingredient suppliers give you the information about whether or not things work. So you get a lot of information that way. But then a lot of the, I guess, um, whether or not a particular ingredient really works on skin, how it works in the skin, that's less important. It's about making a product that, um, like making a product that's stable, that works well with the packaging mm -hmm. that matches the brief that you've been given by the company. A lot of it isn't just analyzing skincare. The third category, I guess, of expert is estheticians. Estheticians are amazing at treating individual people's skin with a range of different tools and treatments. But a lot of the time, their education on, again, how things work is not that intensive in terms of the theory. It's very hands-on. Um, and they are amazing at hands-on stuff. But then if you ask them, how does this particular ingredient work? Um, they're going to give you a lot of the time what the company has told them. And a lot of their education is from the skincare companies. Yeah. And skincare companies aren't always accurate. So I think there's a lot of myths that estheticians promote, even though the myths, I mean, the fact that they're promoting that information, it doesn't affect their ability to help out someone's skin, but it might lead other people to misunderstand which products do and don't work and whether or not products are worth it. So I think that's a really important thing that I don't think gets talked about enough. There is no such thing as the skincare expertise. 
Yeah. Um, so everyone brings something different to the table. And then when we get to consumers, I think consumers bring something so important as well. Just people who try out lots of products. The science behind how different products work is so murky and cloudy. Um, there are very few studies on skincare. Like in medicine, if you have something that's actually a drug, let's say like um, tretinoin or something, for example, or benzoyl peroxide, there are like more than 20 studies, which is amazing. For something like, let's say, um, succinic acid. <laughs> succinic acid, there is like one, half Nothing. a study, really. Yeah. Yeah. For Bacuchiol, there are two studies. Um, so there's a lot of, like, there's just so much, so little we know about how skincare ingredients work. It's, we can either wait, we can wait 50 years for yeah. there to be 50 studies on Bacuchiol, um, but most, a lot of us will not care about Bacuchiol by then. <laughs> a lot of us won't be caring about skincare. Maybe we're all dying in the climate change apocalypse. Oh, gosh. <laughs> we might have bigger things to worry about. Yeah. So like a lot of the time it's easiest just to actually try it. Again, it's just like, just try it and see what happens. That is mm -hmm. like the biggest shortcut a lot of the time. And so having lots of reviews from people you trust is important. Um, and yeah, in terms of who you can trust, um, I think a lot of it is if you follow someone for long enough and they have consistent messages, consistent content, consistent things that they like and dislike, I think that goes a lot towards, for me at least, what I feel like I can trust. Yeah. That was an incredibly long-winded answer. No, it's a, it's a, like you said, it's a messy, deep, like super nuanced topic. I like, I knew it was going to be like potentially a can of worms opening this up, but I'm just, I am so curious to kind of hear even just to even for us to scratch the surface of this, because it is a, a huge topic that I think is kind of emerging and there's, you know, a lot of people who, saying crazy stuff on the internet. I mean, there always has been, um, but I think there's been a lot of um, people feeling like there has been, yeah, some, a lot of it misinformation being spread and they don't know who to blame, who to trust. And there is a very like kind of extreme one way or the other type of thinking where it's like, we have to go all in with experts. And I love that you pointed out that a, like a holistic, well-rounded knows everything about ingredients and formulation and how it works on their skin, but also other people's skin and all of this, there's not one person who's going to be able to really be an expert master in every single one of those fields. And I think maybe the main takeaway here for people who are confused on who they should really be taking information from, you know, your, your biggest point I think was from a variety of sources, it should be. Yes. You know, definitely. You should have, you should have your chemist in your back pocket. <laughs> you know, you should have your dermatologist <laughs> over here. You have your influencer over here, maybe like your skin twin um, person who just seems to like have some of the same stuff going on on their skin as you do. You need all of those and for different, different sources for different information. I mean, I, this is another can of worm sunscreen, <laughs> sunscreen. <laughs> I am feeling like so, I mean, obviously with everything going on with the Purito, keep cool, be plain, huga, the whole kind of Korean sunscreen issue, which isn't really about Korea, but it was a lot of Korean brands that got burned by their manufacturer. Um, that has kind of opened up a, an interesting topic in my mind about the future of 
really just like kind of transparency between sunscreen manufacturers and the consumer, because I find this topic to be incredibly confusing. There's so much information uh, out there and there's just so many like, there's no rules in a way. I mean, as coming Hmm. from the consumer standpoint, like if I'm trying to pick out a sunscreen and I want it to be effective and I don't want it to fail in testing and I want you know, the ultimate protection, UVA, UVB, all of it, and be elegant and comfortable and not mm-hmm. irritate my sense's skin. There's no rules to picking yeah. that sunscreen out, right? You know, and I think that no. that's something a lot of people crave is they want the, yes. one, you know, step one, step two, step three guide. And it's really hard I'm, for us to accept that. <laughs> it's not like that. Yeah, I think, yeah, I've seen a lot of, again, experts try to come up with a single rule. So like, I think someone was like, check if it's on the FDA register and there's no good rule. There's no good rule. There is like something wrong with every single conception of the rule. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, as humans, we are really bad at accepting uncertainty. And I think a lot of, um, we saw that a lot in 2020 with the pandemic. Oh gosh. Um, Like people needed to know immediately if masks were effective and it was just, the research just wasn't there yet. And people were very upset when science seemed to change its mind. Um, But I think the reality is, yeah, everything is some level of uncertain. And unfortunately with sunscreens, like this sort of um, SPF um, wrong, like incorrect SPF testing has been an issue for a really long time. And I think the reason that everyone has suddenly found out about it now is the power of social media. Um, So yeah, back in the day, there's always been um, consumer groups who have been testing sunscreens. There are some who release like a list of tests every year or two. So in the US, um, it's consumer reports and there are always sunscreens that fail. And they are, a lot of them are from really big brands that are trustworthy. And I think that just goes to show that sunscreen testing is just so difficult and it's really difficult even for a big brand with tons and tons of scientists um, and who hire tons and tons of sunscreen experts like people who have dedicated their entire lives to studying sunscreen they can still fail spf like post-market spf testing yeah um so i think i think it's just um one of those pandora's box things where like suddenly everyone realized that it wasn't as certain as they thought it was and everyone felt betrayed. Um, So I think realizing that the situation isn't that different from what it was before, I think is quite comforting. Um, Or it has been to a lot of people I've talked to. Yeah, no, Um, definitely. Yeah, so it's not like suddenly we we like sunscreens don't work. It's sunscreens have always had a level of uncertainty around them. I think some of it also goes back to, um, I saw a lot of people saying they got burnt with the Pareto sunscreen, but they kept using it because it was SPF 50. I think it's one of those situations where um, you should trust your skin more than you trust something on the bottle, Mm. um, which I think is an issue with a lot of other areas of skincare as well. So you see a lot of people um, using a product for years. It works amazingly on their skin. Then they go on cause DNA or something and see that it's comedogenic and then they stop using it. But it's like, it hasn't been comedogenic on you ever. Yeah. Why are you stopping using it because of like something you've read? Um, why aren't you trusting what your own experience, which like, I think one of the things is 
each of us is an expert in our own bodies. Um, yes. No one else is an expert on your body. Um, at the same time, it's good to know about the cognitive um, biases that we have where we can't really interpret. Like sometimes we fail at interpreting what's going on with our bodies. But like if it's something like comedogenicity where you're not seeing pimples with a product, then if something says it's comedogenic, then you should just go with what works, especially with skincare. Yeah. That was not very well thought out. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I say a lot in my videos is I'll say everybody's body is different. And, Mm. you know, I mean, it's just a really good reminder to trust yourself and your skin. And, you know, as much as people do crave, like I said, the, the instant rules, this is how it's done. And it works the same way every single time for every single person. It's, that's just not, that's not, we have to let go of that desire to, to learn mm. a rule. Certainly information can open up, you know, different things for us. Uh, information can, you know, help us understand why a product maybe is or isn't working for us. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's your skin and you know what's happening on it. Sometimes we don't have the intuition to tap into it. That's something everybody needs to mm. learn. The further they go along with their skincare journey and really, uh, you know, kind of tapping into taking care of their skin, there is a certain amount of, you know, gut instinct, which we talked about earlier when it came to choosing your career. But there's gut instinct when it's like, I don't know that this product's actually helping my skin. It might actually be subtly hurting it in a way or drying it out or I don't know, just maybe it's not doing anything. You know, maybe I'm not getting benefits from this or even just as you kind of touched on earlier the, you know, the, the pleasure of skincare, which we don't always mm. think about, but it's like, maybe I just don't even like using this, you know? Um, cause there's some products that I like using that really don't do like amazing benefits or anything for my skin. Mm. Like I love hydrating toners. It replenishes my skin. It makes it feel plump. It makes it feel comfortable, but it's not like, you know, high percentages of niacinamide brightening or anti-aging. I just enjoy it. It feels good. Mm. And there's a big part of like, just the feeling of putting that on my my skin, that's a big part of the pleasure of skincare. And I don't think that we, when we want so much information and we want the rules, I think we sometimes disregard that aspect as being like, I don't know, kind of fluffy, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but I completely important. agree. I completely agree. I think, I think part of it is from the fact that skincare has always been seen as like a very feminine thing. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people are trying to move away from that and they're trying to, um, like show that it's, I don't know, it's a bit more substantial. It's all scientific and stuff. And they're just kind of trying to chuck away, um, some of the reasons that we like skincare, um, they're just denying the fact that it's a lot of it is enjoyment. A lot of it is what you like, like it's human nature. Um, one of the things that cosmetic chemists get told is, the scent of the product is super important because no matter who you give it to, the first thing they're going to do is smell it. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the anti-fragrance sort of um, debate is just denying the fact that as humans, we like things that are pleasing to our senses. Like yeah. we're humans, we're, we have senses, we, we grab it. Like we've got so many years of evolution making us gravitate towards things that we enjoy. Um, the look of, the smell of, the the feel of. And yeah, so I think it's like sort of um, 
I don't know, I think it's unrealistic and it's just not actually that scientific to ignore the sort of more sensory aspects of skincare. Yeah, no, I I think there's been a really interesting kind of roller coaster, even just in the last like two, three years where it really has kind of come into, into play where people are like, you know, don't use these types of ingredients, you know, fragrance is bad, alcohol is damaging, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, there's not really a lot of evidence to back a lot of those claims up. Mm. I, I mean, I'm personally somebody who doesn't use fragrance or alcohol in their products. And yet I'm sitting here and being like, they have a purpose. They they definitely do. They're not dangerous to your skin. And it, it kind of comes back about being an expert in your own body too. I love fragrance, like perfumes and stuff. They can really transport my mind. They can make me feel certain things. There's a sensory element, like an emotional element to that, that cannot be denied. Um, and I don't like, you know, sunscreen that doesn't dry down on my face for 20 some minutes. And I understand that alcohol can help that a lot. You know, it's like, does not fit my lifestyle to not be able to put my makeup on right away in the morning. And there's, so the trend was like, don't do this rules, rules, rules. And I think you make a good point too, of like trying to almost legitimize skincare, bring it to a bigger audience by making it very, you know, scientific and, and proven and driven by percentages and, and studies and, you know, you can win the game of skincare if you <laughs> do it this way, right? Um, but then we kind of pushed away in order to embrace that. We almost pushed away the element of just pure enjoyment. And I think that both of those things can exist in harmony. Mm. I don't think that you it, it can be one or the other. I think right now we feel like it's that way. I think a big part of the community is very, we're very much on separate ends on where we're at, but it's like, how do how can we bring this together and just be like, there's both exist and both are right at the same time. It's just about what you like and your mm. skincare kind of journey. Yeah, I agree. I think it's shifted a lot in the last year, I think, because I think people realize the importance of not being stressed and things that you do for pleasure and self-care. Um, and I think it helps that a lot of experts now um, are coming up who actually enjoy using skincare. Mm. So I think for a long time, a lot of the experts that people are looking to in the skincare community were like cosmetic chemists who don't actually use skincare. So like men, for example, who um, like may, I think there were like lots of cosmetic chemists who are saying, oh, shampoo and face wash are the same. Like they're the same product. You can just wa water down your shampoo a bit and use it as face wash. Um, and then there were also dermatologists who are very like, I, I use lasers, I use I use tretinoin, I use pills. Mm -hmm. Like it was sort of that sort of thing. But now I think there's a lot more experts coming up, um, lots of dermatologists and cosmetic chemists who actually enjoy skincare. And they actually understand that the importance of enjoyment, which is amazing. Like there are a lot of female dermatologists now um, who are just like, look, sometimes in your life you want this and that is fine. Like it's not going to damage your skin irreversibly. So one of my favorite dermatologists is Shireen Idris. Um, and I think the, the first thing I watched of her was her on, um, I think it was a Harper's Bazaar episode where she was reacting to people's skincare routines and skincare yeah. rules. And um, someone was saying, never use makeup wipes. And she was like, 
sometimes you're drunk and you need <laughs> makeup wipes. Like, yeah. And I think that sort of attitude is really refreshing because it brings that perspective and it marries it to the expertise and it yeah. brings you to like a more, I don't know, like real life um, version of skincare, which mm-hmm. I think is important. Yeah. It, it, I think, I think we're going to get there. I think we're going to get to that middle space where the different versions and the different viewpoints can all kind of like exist, coexist in harmony. I think we're going to get there. And I think the more people, like you said, the more people who enter this space and do share their opinions and their expertise and their um, experiences, the more we're able to, to embrace that too. So I think it's actually, we're actually moving in the right direction. We're just kind of in that awkward, like, you know, phase where <laughs> there's very, very split camps with two different kind of philosophies, but we're going to keep mm. moving towards, I think, um, that middle ground. I, th- I think that, that will, that'll be good. Cause yeah, there's definitely a little bit, a little, little negativity, a little bit of uncertainty. A lot of yelling. <laughs> a, yeah, that's actually a really great way to put it instead of negativity. It's just a lot of people yelling like, no, 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 I have the best idea over here. Definitely. Um, so you touched on a topic that I wanted to talk about with you as well, where you said that the skincare space is traditionally seen as a, a female space. And I've just always kind of been curious how it is like for somebody who has kind of come out from like you said, a very rigid academic world that can be very competitive that is also usually traditionally very male-driven. And I know that this is not 100% an accurate, you know, explanation of what the internet and the skincare community and all that is. But I mean, definitely starting from like that kind of blogging era in 2011, it was pretty much a female-driven space when it came to blogging or content creating around skincare, at least it's obviously become much more diverse space now, but I am kind of curious, did you kind of like feel the difference or like a shift in yourself kind of navigating both worlds sometimes at the same time between, you know, as a, you know, Chinese Australian female in this like <laughs> male dominated world, but then coming onto mm. this much more diverse internet space, could you feel the difference there? Definitely. Um, So back in the day, um, even now, I think in academia, academia is so, so male. So um, yeah, it's very masculine and like skincare is still fluffy. I still introduce myself as a science content creator or YouTuber Mm. (laughs) without Mm. talking about the skincare Mm -hmm. part. Um, And a lot of the time when I go, go to like science communication events, if I mention that I talk about the science behind skincare or beauty products, there will be a guy who will say, and what science? Um, that is still very much a thing. Yeah. But um, I'm definitely seeing a lot more women be very open about the fact they're interested in skincare. Like women in professional spaces in male dominated spaces say this, um, which I think is great because I mean, if you look at how many people buy skincare and beauty products, it's a massive market. I don't know why we were hiding it. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone uses, I mean, even, even men use like hand sanitizer, soap, shampoo. It's everyone uses it. Yeah. Um, and it makes sense to be interested in what you're using and try to use better products um, in like every aspect of our lives. Like if you're using a lamp, why not? like wouldn't you look in be interested in like seeing if you're getting a really good deal um, <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah I think I think there's been a lot of um like yeah I think there is a lot of pressure for women in male-dominated spaces to try to appear less like try to look less fluffy I guess Mm -hmm. um try to hide our more feminine interests and just really emphasize like oh yeah I'm really into cars or whatever (laughs) (laughs) it's really really silly and it's unfortunate um but it has improved a lot I think um yeah I guess some of it is probably to do with the sciencing of skincare the fact that it's become a lot more um it, it looks a lot more rigorous now, I think, and people see it as a bit more rigorous than it used to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a it's a weird space. Yeah, I that's why I was so curious to ask you about that, because there does seem to be kind of that. And yeah, like we're saying, it's changing. I mean, we're living in a quite an interesting time um, that things just changed so rapidly in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. Even like we were just saying 10 years ago was a very different kind of way that we even just communicated with each other. Uh, It has completely changed in just 10 years. And we're still talking about having internet and Wi-Fi and high speed and all that, but it's already Mm -hmm. just changed so much. Um, And so we are in kind of like a rapidly evolving time, particularly when it comes to gender dynamics in that space though, it still is slow to change. <laughs> the change is coming, right? But it's not coming as fast. It's not keeping up with the pace of what has happened in the rest of the world, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I was curious to know what that was like kind of stepping into, I hate the word influencer. It just, there's some like <laughs> kind of yucky stuff associated with it. It's hard to kind of like you know, like you said, YouTuber or content creator, however you want to call yourself, you know, stepping into that space on the internet, you know, using both the, the beauty part of things, enjoyment and, and all of that and the ritual of skincare and beauty products, but also marrying it with, you know, kind of academic rigid knowledge about chemistry. I was really curious to know, like, did you feel more free <laughs> starting to blog and make videos? Like you could be more like, I just like this because it makes my lashes look big. Or I know you shared a lot of like nail art and things like that too. Mm. It's like very feminine, you know, parts of yourself. Did you feel more open to do that? Because the space is just more inviting. It's definitely a lot more inviting. And I don't know if it's also partly just because now I have a big enough audience that men well, it's usually men, um, some women as well, um, who saw it as a frivolous space can now see that, yeah, like there are these statistics that show that this is something that people are interested in. I think, Mm -hmm. I think that actually has a lot to do with it as well. Just that sort of like proof of concept, um, like people see the numbers and they realize, oh, actually maybe I should start taking this seriously. Um, Yeah. So unfortunately, I think maybe it is that, um, maybe it is to do with that, but I think also, um, just kind of having people who are, um, I think some of it is to do with trying to break that expectation as well. So one of the things, um, my partner likes to do to people just to mess with them is when they ask him about me that he's like, Oh, she's an influencer. (laughs) And then they're like, what 
so like she wears bikinis on a yeah. beach and you take photos of her and then he goes she's got a PhD in chemistry <laughs> <laughs> and so then which one like, is what? it yeah yeah he, he just likes doing that and I think having that sort of um yeah I think maybe just ha- like seeing people in the space who embody both sides mm-hmm. I think really helps like again like dermatologists who say I like I like this cream because it feels nice I know that it doesn't do anything amazing, but I like it. Like having people yeah. just say that validates that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, if we were doing this podcast interview in 2011, I think that, you know, it would be a very kind of split sort of kind of gender dynamic. But now that, you know, we are having this podcast in 2021, this space on the internet has become so diverse. You know, there are just so many different creators from different backgrounds, different genders, different identities, different perspectives, different, you know, um, just different education, everything. And I think that's really the secret sauce, right? To kind of opening up this world to more people is kind of the embracing different viewpoints and different different ways of, of, of thinking about it. And I think it's more inviting because you don't feel like you have to be a specific way to be into skincare. Um, because every part of the skincare community, there's a corner within this community that, that will hit somebody, you know, maybe it is people who maybe didn't take skincare that seriously, but now they're kind of getting really intrigued by like, how do these ingredients work, you know, and how are they proven and kind of getting into the, the science part of it. And some people are into the sensory part of it. Some people are here to solve skin conditions, you know, problems, acne, um, sensitive skin, rosacea, eczema. So there's a little slice of it for everybody. And that may not have been the case before, but it is now. And I think it's a much more inviting world and it's just growing more and more. Yeah. And I think we're seeing a lot of collaborations between people from different corners I think which really helps as well like just seeing people validate each other's perspectives like seeing dermatologists collaborate with estheticians whereas yeah back in the day it was like dermatologists hated it you sort of got the idea that they hated each other Mm -hmm. like dermatologists thought that estheticians were just like um weren't doing anything they were just like giving massages and estheticians thought that dermatologists were just prescribing everyone um putting everyone on Accutane and on um the most boring cleanser in the world um but yeah I think seeing experts from different fields collaborate seeing people from different corners like like someone like um James Welsh collaborate with um like talking to dermatologists and stuff like that like James Welsh um he's just tried like every product um (laughs) which I think is also really understated that is I I personally consider him an expert just not like an expert with credentials but he has tried so many products he has such an in-depth knowledge of um of skin of the skincare industry in terms of the products and I think yeah I think we should maybe start seeing people who review lots of products as experts because they have tried so many products they've experienced so many different products um yeah yeah no I think that that's I mean even just this collaboration that we're doing right now this interview it's it is it's two different worlds coming together um and yeah definitely taking you know seeing skincare from two different ways but yet we're still kind of meeting eye to eye on a lot of this stuff because at the end of the day it's just the passion for what skincare brings us 
you know, and that's a shared passion between everybody who's in this community participating. You know, we all, we all, we're all here for the enjoyment of it. And yeah, we all get it a little bit different maybe, but at the end of the day, you know, we're all here for the same reason. And I think, yeah, I can't stress enough how, you know, the diversity of the community just makes it so much more welcoming to all different walks of life. And I just think that's a really good thing because I think everybody should have a access to skincare that works, access to skincare that makes them feel good, access to, you know, maybe products or knowledge that help them unlock that self-care moment. Because sometimes it's not just, it's not that easy to give that to yourself mm. sometimes. <laughs> so I, I'm going to start wrapping it up. I don't want to, but I'm going to start wrapping up the mm. interview because this has been really great. Um, but I do want to end with some like lightning round rapid fire questions. Um, and the first one, so if you're ready, the first one is... Do you prefer tea or coffee? I prefer tea mostly because um, I used to be addicted to coffee. Um, mm. Like I couldn't live without it. And then I realized how much it was costing me. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I am addicted to my coffee, but I keep it at one. If I have too much caffeine, I go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> What's your, like, describe your dream vacation. Oh, um, honestly, I think as you probably understand as like an online content creator, my dream vacation would be something where I could completely switch off Mm -hmm. that will probably never happen. But like maybe if I got, I don't know, um, an island in the middle of nowhere, um, no Internet and Mm -hmm. I didn't have to worry about the Internet, like dealing with content before and after I got there. I think that would be perfect. Mm. I don't think it'll ever happen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something I like tell myself. I'm like, I really need a vacation. I'm like, but you need to work a month in advance in order to take a vacation. <laughs> it's not worth it. Um, what is the best advice that you've ever been given? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, the best advice um, for, I think, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people probably need the opposite of this, but for me, it was listen to your gut. Mm. Um, I do not like, I have so little confidence in my own gut feelings, um, that that was always the thing for me. I needed to listen to it more. Some people need to listen to it less. Some people need to listen to it more. Um, and I'm definitely more on the, I need to listen to it more side. Yeah. What is a trend that you would like to see leave the skincare or beauty space, uh, this year? Um, I'd like to see clean beauty leave, um, like the idea that there are ingredients in your products, in most products that will, um, be harmful to your long-term health. It's Mm. just not how it works. Um, I feel like it is starting to leave a bit and it's switching to sustainability, which I really like. Um, I am a big fan of sustainability, but I think there's going to be a lot of greenwashing coming up, I think. Yeah, definitely. What's a trend that you would like people to embrace this year? Um, I think maybe, yeah, along the lines of sustainability Mm -hmm. and just um, using what you need, um, buying what you actually need rather than just buying something just for the hype of it. Mm. Um, Yeah, because I think one of the biggest things with sustainability and um, climate change and stuff like that is 
a lot of the time it's not about buying the right product. A lot of the time it's like not buying a product is the most sustainable thing you can do. So yeah, like if you, and I think the skincare industry, a lot of the time they're just trying to sell us more products. They're trying to invent new products that we don't need, like um, blue light protection um, because your screen is aging you or something. Um, and yeah, a lot of the time they are just inventing new categories to sell. <laughs> and I think it would be good if consumers um, were a little bit more conscious about that and really thought about, do I need to buy this or am I just buying it for the hype? Yeah. That like, I mean, I want to like dive into that topic too, but this was the, the lightning round. <laughs> no, Second podcast. Right. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a, that's a whole nother subject. And I think you're right. I think that is um, going to be the hot new thing is the sustainability in the beauty community and how we can do better as consumers. And I think people have a lot of different ideas on how to do that, but I, I'm with you when you, when you say sometimes the best, you know, purchase that you can make is to not purchase. I, I I'm with you because I think we we actually overconsume in, in that in that way way more than like maybe making a, a bad packaging choice or something. Mm. It's just the amount that we consume rather than how we're consuming it. So I think yeah. that's an amazing point that we can kind of ponder. All of our listeners can kind of ponder that and see if maybe that's true of them. It's definitely something I've done before in the past. So thank you so much. This has just been like I just loved this conversation. It just like, it got my brain going. It got like all these ideas is super inspiring. And thank you so much for sharing your story. Where can our listeners find you online? So I'm on Instagram at Lab Muffin Beauty Science. I have a blog, labmuffin.com and I'm on YouTube as Lab Muffin Beauty Science as well. And I should really probably do more TikTok <laughs> soon. <laughs> I have yet to get onto it, so, <laughs> but I would like to as well. Well, thank you so much again, Michelle, for sharing everything with us today. And hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Kelly. I loved talking to you. All right. Bye. I told you that conversation was good. I really loved talking with Michelle and there were so many great takeaways from this conversation. I mean, I think the biggest one for me with this one was follow your gut instinct. Listen to what your gut is telling you. And in fact, that's actually, you know, the best piece of advice that she was ever given was listening to your gut. And you see that thread in her story of her journey, you know, to her chemistry PhD. Remember when she she's talking about working at the law firm and how it just wasn't the right fit. It was not in alignment with her at all. You know, having to defend a tobacco company really did not sit easy with her. And she would cry on her commute to and from that law firm. And that was really her gut instinct kicking in strong, telling her this is not right. She did not have it all figured out. She did not have a perfect plan for her education, but she listened to her gut instinct. She followed that passion. And step by step, that path really unfolded for her and it did all work out in the end, but she had to kind of take that leap of faith, trust her gut instinct and follow what felt right for her. 
Another takeaway from this conversation was just start. A couple times in the conversation, we said done is better than perfect. Don't agonize over the details, trying to make it absolutely right. Get your message out there. And it's actually a really great callback to my solo cast, episode four, Stop Being a Perfectionist. And in that episode, I really deep dive into the fact that perfection doesn't really exist. Nothing is ever going to be perfect, right? And chasing perfectionism is actually just the fear of failure. And it's 100% holding you back from getting started. And Michelle really shared a great um, piece of wisdom with her analogy about swimming. You know, you can read a book about swimming, but at what point do you need to stop agonizing over the details in the book? right? And just get out there and get into the water. Where are you going to learn best? And eventually you do have to get into the water. You do have to try it out. And that might even be the better way to learn. So you got to get your message out there. You got to just start. Another great kind of example of this from Michelle's story is her name. You know, she she said, I don't really like the name Lab Muffin Beauty Science, but it was the only name that I could come up with. And I just really wanted to get my blog started and I didn't want to agonize over the name because I can always change it later. So she did not chase perfectionism. She was like, I just got to get started. I just got to learn this blogging thing and I'm going to see where it goes. And that's really the right way to do it. So don't agonize over those details, guys. If you want to get out there, if you have a message to share and I promise you, you do. You have something that is going to be a wonderful gift to the world. You got to just start. Done is better than perfect. Don't chase that. Don't let the fear of failure hold you behind. The sooner you start, the farther ahead you're going to be. I think especially from the skincare perspective, a really good takeaway from this conversation is when Michelle said that there's not really one holistic expert in skincare. There's not just one person who is a genius master of every facet of skincare. And if you are somebody who is exploring the online skincare space, maybe looking to kind of up your skincare game, you may be wondering, who should I follow? Who can I trust? Who is the best source of information? right? Who has the best, um, most reliable information out there. And I think the biggest takeaway here is that there's not just one person, but actually a variety of people who have their own zones of genius, who have something to offer in this space. The advice that you might get from a dermatologist is going to serve you in a different way than the advice that you're going to get from a cosmetic chemist and vice versa. And, you know, influencers or skincare enthusiasts are dictionaries of products and they're really going to empower your purchasing decisions. So you should have a variety of voices that you're listening to, which is easier than ever in today's skincare space. So definitely take in a variety of different perspectives and voices to really inform your skincare choices because at the end of the day, it just makes you a more powerful and more informed consumer. And aren't we all just trying to do that? So big thank you again to Michelle Wong for spending some time with us today. It was a really great conversation. And if you thought it was great too, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate it with stars or even with words is better. It just really helps get the podcast out to more people. And if you love the episode, please consider sharing it on social media. You can tag me on Instagram. I'm at Kel Driss. And you can subscribe to me on YouTube if you want some more content from me before next week's episode, which I cannot wait for. I cannot wait to talk to you guys again soon. And I'm sending you so much love on this journey. Bye.